Welcome to the Alan and Avery podcast. This episode will focus on key considerations for UK listed PLCs that are planning their 2021 AGM and writing their annual report for 2020. My name is Ash Tiwari and I'm a senior associate in ANO's London corporate team. Joining me on this podcast today are Victoria Rankmore, Kate Astley, Paul McCarthy, and Matt Townsend. Victoria and Kate are counsel in ANO's London corporate team. They advise ANO's listed PRC clients on their AGMs and annual reports. Paul and Matt are partners in our London corporate team. Paul heads the UK corporate incentives practice, and Matt heads the environmental, climate, and regulatory law practice. Needless to say, the 2020 AGM season was extraordinary. AGMs, large and small, take a lot of planning, and this year, during lockdown, no one's event could go ahead as planned. We saw many closed meetings with empty offices, residential addresses, and even motorway service stations used as venues. Everyone was focused firstly on holding a valid meeting and getting the AGM business done. But beyond that, and particularly in the later part of the season, companies were looking for new ways to engage with their shareholders. Of course, the challenges of holding the AGM were a small detail in the context of the the huge changes many companies had to make to their business in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Changes which no one anticipated when writing last year's annual reports. And this makes 2020 a unique year for corporate reporting. Starting with a blank page may seem more suitable than starting with last year's text. And looking beyond the impact of COVID-19, there are ongoing developments in reporting reflecting the broader direction of public policy and investor sentiment, particularly around diversity, executive remuneration and in the environmental and climate change space. And with the end of the Brexit transition period on the horizon, we're also turning our minds to what this might mean for UK corporate reporting in the immediate and the longer term. So we have a lot to cover, but thinking first about AGMs, Victoria, 2020 was clearly a one-off, but it seems unlikely we'll be fully back to business as usual in 2021. What lessons do you think have been learned from AGMs in the last few months? Thanks, Ash. So before 2020, we saw real variation in terms of how AGMs were organised, the resources put in and the attendance levels. So the lockdown 2020 season was quite a leveller. I think actually there's a chance that the abrupt end of AGMs as we knew them may bring about an improvement overall going forward. In many ways, the traditional AGM format had become rather tired. And now there's this opportunity for companies to explore how they might use the AGM to engage with a wider shareholder group. We definitely saw companies going to a lot of effort towards the back end of the 2020 season. When lockdown first began, we were mostly seeing closed meetings just to get the AGM business done. But as time went on, we saw a wider range of approaches, including virtual and hybrid meetings, meetings with a webcast for shareholders to watch, and meetings where shareholders could dial in either on a listen-only basis or with an opportunity to speak. The FRC has just this October published a review of the AGM season, actually, give some very interesting insights. So from all the meeting types you saw in 2020, which format do you think is the best and what do you expect to see more of in 2021? Kate, would you like to answer that one? Thanks, Victoria. Well, I think what's best will depend on the company and its shareholder base. And this is something the FRC acknowledges in its review. But before a company can think about what's best, it needs to think about what's permitted, which normally depends on the company's articles. It comes back to those questions people were asking at the beginning of lockdown about making sure, first and foremost, that there's a valid meeting to transact the AGM business. Isn't there legislation now that helps with this? 
Yes, uh, as you say, there is the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020, known as SEGA, which came into force in the summer and applied retrospectively to AGMs from the start of lockdown. Now, this allows companies to hold fully virtual meetings or hybrid meetings, even if their articles don't cover this, and also actually to hold fully closed meetings. So far, the flexibility only lasts until December. And while it seems very possible Seeger will be extended again, given what Boris has said about COVID restrictions potentially continuing for six months, this is not guaranteed. And so companies shouldn't be planning as though an extension of Seeger is certain. I agree. And what we're currently suggesting our clients do, first of all, is check what their articles allow. A number of companies will have articles that permit hybrid meetings. And so with months ahead to plan, they may want to speak to technology providers about setting up electronic participation. I should note that we're not advising clients to plan a virtual only meeting at this stage in the absence of an extension of SEGA, as there are still questions around legal validity and absent extreme circumstances, institutional shareholders are still opposed to the virtual only format. The FRC, as we understand it, is planning to work with the government and investors to try and achieve some clarity and consensus around virtual meetings. But this will obviously take some time. So for companies that can do hybrid meetings under their articles, is there any downside? Well, for some companies, a hybrid meeting complete with a meeting app and the ability to vote and ask questions live at the meeting could be a great option. And once the technology is set up, it will be relatively easy to switch to an electronic-only format if that's appropriate in view of COVID restrictions at the time of the AGM. But for other companies, and perhaps particularly those who think only a small number of shareholders would use the technology for the AGM, the cost and organisation might seem disproportionate. We suggest talking to registrars and possibly also technology providers. Yes, and for those companies that decide a hybrid or electronic meeting isn't right for them, there are, of course, other options to enhance shareholder involvement, such as telephone or video conferences or a live webcast all of which were popular approaches in 2020. For companies that prefer these routes, there are two points that we would flag. First is to make sure that everyone is aware of the importance of proxy voting in advance, as people who dial in or watch a webcast won't technically be attending the meeting, so they'll need the chair of the meeting to vote for them as their proxy to ensure their vote counts. The second point is to think about how best to organise shareholder questions Shareholders are being asked to vote in advance, and so they may also need answers in advance in order to be able to make those informed voting decisions. Individual responses are one option, but we've also heard of some companies considering Q&A sessions for shareholders to take place before the proxy deadline. Absolutely. Keeping shareholder communication open really is the key here. Companies need to be doing whatever they can to make sure shareholders can still challenge the board and to replicate as far as possible the open format of a normal AGM. Looking at its review, the FRC obviously has a very firm preference for shareholders to be able to hear board presentations and Q&A before voting. And it's certainly the case that a closed meeting without any opportunity for shareholders to participate or to listen in on the meeting does not feel like a viable option for 2021, even if SEGA is extended and closed meetings are technically allowed. Closed meetings, of course, deny shareholders their voice. And while most investors tolerated them in 2020, as they could see just how challenging it was to organise AG in lockdown, much more will be expected of companies in 2021. You mentioned there are some companies that don't have hybrid or electronic meeting provisions in their articles. Should these companies be doing anything about this? Yes, I think they should. 
there are lots of companies that don't have these provisions actually, which is understandable as hybrid and electronic meetings haven't been common in the market. But this is likely to change. So we will be suggesting to clients with older style articles that they consider an update by special resolution at their 2021 AGM to provide for hybrid meetings in the future. Provisions allowing for virtual only meetings are still not recommended, given, as I said, the uncertainty around legal validity and institutional shareholder views. But this may change over time. Companies updating their articles this year can use the opportunity also, if they want to, to give their articles a general refresh. And in this context, we would suggest companies check the adjournment of meeting provisions to see whether they're as flexible as they could be. Forward planning of AGMs feels much trickier now than it did in the past. So turning now, Kate, from the AGM arrangements to annual report drafting, which may actually be a more pressing concern for many people currently, what's new for reporting this year? Well. By comparison with last year, where most companies were reporting under the 2018 code for the first time and drafting their first ever Section 1721 statements, there isn't really much in the way of new hard requirements, although there are some new requirements for environmental reporting, which we can ask Matt to talk us through shortly. But 2020 does mark the end of the period covered by the current targets of the Hampton-Alexander review, so it'll be interesting to see how companies report on the progress they have made in meeting those targets of 33% women in both board and senior executive positions by 2020. The FTSE 100 had collectively met this target as at February 2020, with the FTSE 250 not far off at just below 30%. But it's individual company performance that will be interest of most investors. And I wonder whether some companies will now introduce higher targets with a longer term aim of full gender parity. Now, of course, reporting on diversity isn't limited to gender. Both the code and the DTRs specifically cover a much wider spectrum. And a particular area where we're expecting more detailed reporting this year is around ethnic diversity, noting the target set by the Parker Review for all FTSE 100 companies to have at least one director from an ethnic minority background by 2021. Yes, Kay, as you say, the government-backed Parker Review set targets back in 2017 for each FTSE 100 board to have at least one director of colour by 2021 and for each FTSE 250 board to have the same by 2024. We're now three years on and the update to the Parker Review suggests that while there has been some movement, overall progress among FTSE companies has not been as expected. So, for example, as at December last year, 37% of companies surveyed in the FTSE 100 and 69% of FTSE 250 companies still did not have any minority ethnic representation on their boards. So we do expect companies to be focusing on this issue over the coming reporting season, especially given the timeline for the FTSE 100 recommendation is now fast approaching. The Parker Review also made three other recommendations. One, that CEOs should develop mechanisms to identify, develop and promote people of colour within their organisations. Two, FTSE 350 boards should mentor and sponsor people of colour within their own companies. And three, that a description of the board's policy on diversity should be set out in the company's annual report, including a description of the company's efforts to increase ethnic diversity within its organisation. And this was echoed again in the recent update to the Parker Review, which again urged companies to fully report on their ethnic diversity policies and activities. So taking all of that on board, we're advising our clients to consider including in their annual report their racial and ethnic diversity policies and activities, whether that be their mentoring and sponsorship schemes, their access initiatives, or their targets to have ethnic minority representation in their executive ranks and on their boards. 
So we do anticipate some interesting disclosures in this space in 2021, especially as we see ethnic diversity climbing the agenda for many institutional investor bodies. Interestingly, the Equal Pay Bill had its first reading in the House of Lords, and if it becomes legislation, companies will be required to publish their ethnicity pay gap. So we're suggesting our clients begin to understand their data in this area, because knowing if there is a mismatch will allow companies to identify and focus on fixing any areas of concern, and will mean they're a step ahead if or indeed when the bill is passed. But thinking back now more broadly to this year's report drafting and other current issues, Victoria, the COVID-19 pandemic is presumably going to feature very strongly this year. What are your thoughts on this? I agree with you, Ash. It's likely to feature throughout the report and perhaps above all in the strategic report. The purpose of the strategic report section, as you'll know, is to help members assess how the directors have performed their duty to promote the success of the company. And this year, that will obviously involve explaining how the company has dealt with the challenges that it's faced and is continuing to face during this pandemic. I think the Section 1721 statement will be a particularly effective vehicle for companies to explain the approach they've taken, given the range of stakeholder issues that the board will have had to consider, in many cases in relation to employees in particular. Some of the stronger Section 1721 statements we saw in last year's batch gave specific examples of situations which stakeholders had been considered in decision making. Yes, and other disclosures that might be impacted, although this depends on the sector and the individual business, of those around business model and strategy and principal risks and uncertainties. And viability statements, which have become rather boilerplate over time, will also need to be revisited, particularly, I think, the disclosure of how the boards assess the prospects of the company and qualifications and assumptions. And actually, even the governance report won't look quite the same as usual. Lockdown has necessitated so many changes to the way companies and boards will run. And the governance report will need to illustrate how good governance with robust challenge and careful decision making were maintained throughout the year. Thanks, Victoria and Kate. So staying with the governance section, but turning to you now, Paul, what are the main factors affecting companies' directors' remuneration this year? Thanks, Ash. This is probably the first year in a long time when companies haven't had to grapple with new regulatory reporting requirements or investor recommendations in their directors' remuneration report. The company's miscellaneous reporting regulations and the revised shareholder rights directive were effective for financial years from 2019. So companies should now be familiar with those as well, of course, as the updated 2018 corporate governance code. Therefore, we might have anticipated it will be a case of doing more of the same this year with, of course, increasing scrutiny on executive compensation. Indeed, back in early February, the Investment Association speculated that executive pay would, and I quote, dominate discussions between shareholders and companies in 2020. However, I don't think the IA or indeed anyone else could have predicted what was coming and the impact that COVID-19 would have on directors' remuneration, the big curveball thrown at remuneration committees this year. Yes, there has been increased public attention on directors' remuneration since the pandemic, and there is a feeling that top executives need to share the pain of the current economic uncertainty. How have companies reacted to COVID? Well, looking at the various elements of executive pay and taking salary first, 36 of the FTSE 100 announced executive pay cuts shortly after the extent and impact of the pandemic started to become clear. But without being unduly sceptical here, there may be an element of virtue signalling, at least for some. 
many of those companies have already reinstated their executives full pay, and a number have raised the prospect of backdating, notwithstanding the ongoing position with COVID-19. And for those of you who didn't hear it, there were two exclamation marks at the end of that last sentence. Turning to bonuses, some companies, and those with December financial year ends, had already awarded bonuses pre the COVID crisis. Investors will expect Renko's in badly hit sectors, and I would stress that a lot of this will be sector-driven. To consider the use of discretion or malice provisions to reduce deferred bonus awards or alternatively reflect this year's events in FY2020 bonus payouts. Where bonuses had not been awarded, we saw companies deferring, reducing or cancelling bonus payments to the directors, although 88 of the FTSE 100 still paid their CEO some form of bonus. For those companies who suspended dividends, raised capital or relied on the government's furlough scheme, investors would expect this to be reflected in executive pay to avoid any negative publicity. The use or misuse of the furlough scheme may be a story that unfolds in due course. Investors would not expect to see any bonuses paid where any employees were furloughed or any of the wider workforce has been made redundant. Finally, looking at LTIPs, we saw near unprecedented falls in share prices globally earlier in the year. In normal circumstances, best practice following a significant share price drop, i.e. 20% or more, is to consider decreasing the size of awards granted to participants under LTIPs to avoid potential windfall gains from any future share price recovery. Companies had a number of options with respect to the current and future operation of their share plans, and again, the approach taken varied significantly from sector to sector. Some companies made grants as usual and were clear that Remco may need to exercise discretion investing. Others made upfront cuts to award sizes based on their share price at the grant date. Others made grants with explicit built-in flex to allow the ability to lapse a portion of the award or top up the award depending on future share price movement up to 12 months from grant. Some granted awards but delayed setting performance targets, an IA-approved approach, so long as those conditions are confirmed within six months of grant, although this period now is, I'm afraid, looking a little bit too short. And some delayed granting LTIPs entirely, although this does disrupt the share award calendar, and institutional investors have encouraged companies to make grants within six months of the normal grant date, again, six months looking, looking a little bit short now. Whatever approach companies have taken, REMCOs will need to set out very clearly in their next REM reports the action they have taken and those factors they will take into account when determining vesting to avoid any windfall gains. So looking ahead and in light of COVID, what should remuneration committees be focusing on as they draft their reports for 2020 and in some instances update their directors' remuneration policies? Well, the majority of public companies put their three-year remuneration policy to shareholders at their 2020 AGM and would, we hope, have spent significant time consulting with shareholders on these. The pandemic should not be a reason to suddenly rewrite those policies. And so, unless up for renewal in any event, existing remuneration policies should continue to be the basis for all executive remuneration decision-making. As for remuneration reports, investors will be scrutinising them for how Remco's reacted to the unprecedented events and exercised any discretions. Full and clear disclosure will be essential. Last year, for example, M&G, Aviva and Legal and General opposed at least one in four remuneration reports for FTSE 350 companies. 
and dissatisfaction with the executive remuneration accounted for 43% of all shareholder rebellions, and a rebellion for this purpose being classified as where at least 20% of investors refused to back a resolution. This trend is probably set to continue, and so the role of the Remco will not get any easier. These unprecedented times have led many to rethink many aspects of their businesses and how they are run. This review is almost certain to feed through into the setting of performance metrics for long-term incentive plans. Setting three-year financial targets was already challenging and has been made even more so. Measuring relative performance via, for example, TSR, is likely to be a good way of gauging how well a company is performing during times of economic uncertainty. It may also make it more likely that companies will dispense with performance targets altogether and focus on share price alone. The introduction of restricted share plans with no performance conditions and awards made at a lower value level is much more likely. Companies with a poor payout record under their LTIP over the past few years are already moving this way, and it's likely that the shockwaves that have flowed and continue to flow through the market in many sectors will accelerate this trend. Thank you, Paul. So it sounds like there's lots for Remco's to be thinking about this year, even if there aren't any hard changes to the requirements. I think Kate mentioned earlier that there are some specific changes to the environmental reporting requirements this year, however. So I will turn to you now, Matt, if I may. What will companies reporting on the 2020 financial year need to think about? And what do you see coming down the pipeline in this space? Thanks, Ash. The key change for this year stems from the Streamlined Energy and Carbon Reporting, or SECR, regime. So if you're reporting on a financial year that started 1st January 2020, these SECR requirements will need to be included in your reporting for the first time in 2021. The new requirements apply for quoted companies and they focus on three key areas. First, there are obligations to report on global annual energy consumption from activities the company is responsible for, as well as energy consumption resulting from the purchase of electricity, heat and other sources by the company for its own use. Second, the obligations require a description of the measures the company has taken during the financial year to improve its energy efficiency. And third, there are also new requirements for companies to disclose what proportion of their emissions and energy consumption relate to domestic emissions and energy consumption. And don't forget, these requirements are all on top of the existing reporting obligations around scope one and scope two emissions, which quoted companies have been reporting on since before the SECR regime came into force on the 1st of April 2019. I think there's also one other point to note that will now affect large unquoted companies for the first time, and that would include listed companies, provided they meet certain threshold criteria. And so for the first time, large unquoted companies with a financial year starting on 1st January will also need to make their very first SECR disclosures next year, covering emissions, energy consumption, energy efficiency action, intensity ratios, and associated methodologies. Prior to the SECR regime, large unquoted companies did not have to report on any of this, including emissions. So whilst they cover the same themes, the mandatory energy and carbon reporting requirements for large unquoted companies 
are different to those required for a quoted company. So, for example, large unquoted companies only have to report on emissions and energy consumption relating to the UK rather than on a global basis. So to your question about what's on the horizon and what could be coming down the pipeline, well, I think we can expect a continued focus in the UK on reporting pursuant to the recommendations of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or the TCFD. Back in July last year, when the UK's Green Finance Strategy was published, it was made clear that the government expected all listed companies and large asset owners to make disclosures using the TCFD recommendations by 2022. Since the UK's Green Strategy announcement, there have been various consultations on requiring TCFD disclosures. First up, there was an FCA consultation on new listing rules that would require premium listed companies to include a statement in their annual report and accounts, setting out whether they disclose in line with the TCFD recommendations and to explain any non-compliance. The new listing rules would apply in relation to accounting periods beginning on or after 1st January 2021, meaning that the first disclosure would be in 2022. By way of reminder, reporting in accordance with the TCFD framework would require companies to build out reporting in a number of key areas. In particular, it requires disclosures in relation to climate governance, strategy, risk management and metrics, and also targets. I think the final thing to note in this area is also the number of EU-level initiatives that are on the horizon as regards environmental reporting, and that notwithstanding Brexit, are likely to have an impact for UK companies. The first of these is the review of the Non-Financial Reporting Directive, which amended the Accounting Directive. And currently, the NFRD requires large public interest entities with over 500 employees to report on various matters in a non-financial information statement in their annual report. Companies within the scope of the NFRD regime have been reporting uh, pursuant to it since 2018. Uh, More particularly, the NFRD currently requires reporting on four sustainability-related issues, being environment, social and employee issues, human rights and bribery and corruption. This will require a company to report on its business model, policies, risks and risk management processes and non-financial KPIs on these issues. And this information need only be disclosed to the extent necessary to understand the company's development, performance and position and the impacts of its activities. Importantly, the outcomes of the NFRD review are not yet known, but we do know that strong support during the consultation has been given for bringing additional companies within its scope. For instance, large non-listed companies and large companies not established in Europe that are listed on an EU-regulated market. There also appears to be strong support for a requirement to use a particular mandatory reporting framework. Both of these are fairly big departures from the current system if they come to fruition. So we're expecting the Commission's proposals for the NFRD reform in Q1 2021. The second of these is Article 8 of the EU Taxonomy Regulation. 
This is potentially wide-reaching in what would need to be reported. Now, Article 8 essentially says that all of the companies within the scope of the NFRD regime have to also report annually on how and to what extent their activities are associated with environmentally sustainable activities as defined under the regulation and future delegated acts. And these reporting requirements will apply from 1st of January 2022 or 1st January 2023, depending upon the nature of the environmentally sustainable activity. And because the Article 8 of the Taxonomy Regulation currently links with the entities within the scope of the NFRD regime, the review of the NFRD could have far-reaching consequences, both in terms of environmental reporting under the NFRD and also the entities required to report under the uh, taxonomy regulation. So the long and short of all of that is that you should be keeping a very close eye on um, both of these developments. And the final comment I'd make in terms of the horizon is that both of these developments are very much part of a broader trend for enhanced disclosure on environmental and climate issues more generally. And we fully anticipate this to be a very active area for many years to come. And this is being driven by regulatory, but also stakeholder pressure for a step change in how companies report on these issues. And importantly, the quality and depth of the data that is generated. We're also seeing a greater drive for disclosure in areas such as human rights and supply chains. Thanks, Matt. It seems there really is a lot to keep an eye on for environmental reporting. I noticed you mentioned two EU-level pending reporting proposals or requirements under the NFRD and the taxonomy regulation. How is the UK going to approach these and annual reporting more generally in a post-Brexit world? So looking at the NFRD first, the changes to that regime are all going to be made post 31st December this year. So the UK technically won't be required to do anything about the revised NFRD in terms of implementing it in the UK. However, whilst the UK government hasn't said anything explicitly on the NFRD, um, it has quite clearly stated that it wants the UK to lead the way on reporting climate and environmental risks in line with the TCFD recommendations. The government has also said that it's essential that the UK retains its position as a leading market in sustainable finance. And this will mean that financial actors will need to have access to the necessary information from corporates. So further sustainability related disclosure requirements in line with or indeed exceeding potentially EU standards are met. And these are certainly not off the table in the UK in the post-Brexit world. As regards the taxonomy regulation, this is a little bit more complicated because, first of all, the regulation is currently in force, but certain elements of it only become applicable after the end of the transition period and so will not form part of retained European law for Brexit purposes. Importantly, included in that category are the reporting requirements in Article 8 that I've talked about earlier. We don't have certainty at this stage around what will happen to these reporting requirements in the UK post-Brexit. However, it would be in line with the UK's ambitions to strengthen its status as a global hub for sustainable finance 
and indeed its commitments in last year's green finance strategy to at least match the ambition of the objectives of the European Sustainable Action Plan to look very seriously at those and how they can be implemented. So this, is, of course, is still very much up in the air and, again, should be monitored closely in the months and years ahead. In terms of the impact of Brexit on annual corporate reporting more generally, in my view, there's not going to be much change in the short term. These reporting requirements are embedded in legislation which will continue to operate post-Brexit. It's more of a pipeline question, as I would see it, and to see how far the UK government wants to pursue its own course on a number of these initiatives. And it's entirely possible that there will be a number of nuanced differences between the UK and continental Europe on corporate reporting going forward. Thank you, Matt. We've now covered our agenda, but just before we wrap up, I'd like to ask each of you to pick out a key takeaway from your practice area. Victoria, what would you draw out? Thanks, Ash. I'd say it's to start planning for the AGM early on, but to make plans flexible, given the uncertainty over SEGA and any other action the government would take. The main thing to think about is how to manage shareholder engagement and questions if normal in-person meetings aren't possible. And how about you, Kate? Well, I agree with Victoria that planning the next AGM is key, but I'd also say that companies should be looking beyond 2021 meeting to see how they'd like to run things in the future. For example, those companies that don't have provision for electronic participation at general meetings in their articles, or who found last year that their articles didn't give them as much flexibility as they wanted to change meeting arrangements, should think really seriously about updating their articles at the 2021 AGM. Thanks, Kate and Victoria. And what's your takeaway, Paul? Thanks, Ash. Well, I think it's going to be a case of balancing the need to incentivise executives during a time when senior management are being asked to really step up and lead companies through unprecedented economic turmoil, while ensuring that those executives are not isolated from the impact of COVID in a manner that is inconsistent with the approach taken to the general workforce. Companies should, I think, take the same approach across the workforce where possible. And as far as the director's remuneration report is concerned, discretion will likely be exercised by Remco's now more than ever. And any exercise must be very clearly disclosed and explained in the director's remuneration report. Thanks, Paul. What would be your key takeaway, Matt? Ash, if I can stretch your question to give you three quick takeaways, if I may. First of all, keep a close eye on the new SECR reporting requirements that will bite in the near term. Secondly, Brexit is unlikely to change reporting requirements in the near term. And thirdly, environmental and ESG-related reporting is in a phase, I think, of evolution. And my view is we're at the start of that journey, so there is more to come. Thank you, Matt. And thank you to all of our speakers and to you for taking the time to listen to us today. We hope you found this podcast interesting. Do get in touch with any questions or if we can help you with any aspect of your AGM or annual report. Thank you again.